You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning, Free City. Can you guys just feel the excitement in the air today? Baptisms, you got the music banging, right? Everybody feel that? Am I not just the only one there, right? Yeah. All right, Free City. My name is Evan Billiter. I'm a part of the Spurly Somerville City Group. And I've been attending Free City Church for about four years now. So today, I'm going to be reading from Matthew 5, 31 through 37. That's going to be found on page 760 in the Black Bibles below your seats. I'll give you a second just to get there, and then we'll get going here. All right, so... Matthew 5, 31 says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But, it say, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of our great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you said be simply yes or no. Anything more than that, comes from evil. Pray with me. Father God, um, we thank you. We thank you that we can gather here freely and express our love and dependence on you. Uh, I pray that as Casey goes about this sermon, that your glory is magnified in it. Um, All of these topics are somewhat tough to talk about. I pray that you use it for good, and I pray that in anything that Casey is going to be saying, that we can find some fruit and bear it and just use it to bring more disciples of all nations to you, Father. I pray uh, for Central as well. I pray that these halls are filled with your spirit, Lord. I pray that you move boldly. You ask us to pray boldly, and I pray that you do big things here at Central. I pray that the staff come to know you. I pray that the administrators come to know you. And most importantly, I pray for our students that they come to know you as well. Uh, Father God, thank you again for just this exciting and glorious day with baptisms, with the music and everything like that. Father, you are great and you are fantastic, Father, and we love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. That was a good morning. Uh, Gosh, Ryan, you are giant. (laughs) It makes me feel so insecure. Um, Put that thing down. Okay. Uh, my name is Casey, I'm one of the pastors here, and we uh, are obviously um, in Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew for a while, and we're to the place uh, where it's the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus, um, this is probably a collection of sermons that he preached over and over as he went throughout Galilee and Jerusalem. And so if, if you're familiar with, with, with Matthew, like you see like this question about divorce comes up here, and then it comes up again in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees, it says they're trying to trick him uh, or get him to take sides. And so what happens was, it was something they probably heard a lot, 
And they heard it over and over. And so there was a moment where, you know, kind of in between different views of, you know, what marriage and what divorce is, they said, Jesus, are you on our side or are you on their side? Where it said, Jesus, when it, when it comes to divorce, just are, 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 you, are you conservative uh, like us or are you liberal like us? Where do you fall on this? And so, you know, when we look at the, the gospel uh, according to Matthew, Matthew is very careful to try to explain to us what Jesus was like. He's very careful to tell us what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And he's very careful to say, this is the Jesus that's real. Like there's always a danger to want to interpret a Jesus that fits me. But we have to come to grip with what the scriptures say. And so it was written down to give an account of who Jesus is. And in it, we find, uh, we find Jesus' teachings and what he said. We find what he did. We find the miracles. We find why he was killed upon a cross. And we find testimony that he rose again. And this word that comes over and over throughout Matthew, the word fulfill, is very important to Matthew. It's not only important to Matthew, it's very important to the New Testament to tie us into the Old Testament of all the promises and the truth keeping of God to say, Jesus came to fulfill what you never could. And if it doesn't get filled in, there is no reunion with God. And so we we come to a, a hard truth passage you know, I, this is not an official um, theological category, but I feel like sometimes we have hard truths and we have cuddle truths. Like sometimes cuddle truths are cuddly. We're like, oh, I love that, man. Forgiveness, reunion, Jesus receives me right where I am. And then sometimes we have hard truths because God created the world and relationships to work in a certain way. And when sin enters in and disrupts those relationships, it causes great hurt and great damage. And, you know, we're, uh, we're celebrating baptisms. And, man, that's exciting. We get to celebrate new life in Jesus. It's a great, we're going to hear stories of how God intercepted uh, two young ladies, their lives. And within those stories, man, we hear how he used the drawing of his spirit, used difficulty and pain and confusion and used friendship and the promise of joy, used all of those things to draw their heart, to step over a line, to say, I believe in Jesus. And, you know, if, if the scriptures are true in Luke 15, it says that when one sinner turns to God, the entire courts of heaven celebrate. Or, or it even says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, it says the angels long to look into the gospel because it has a mystery. Like they're like, I can't believe this is what it's like. And so we get to celebrate that. And I always want to do, you know, because we have family come in, you know, I always want to do more cuddle truths um, on baptisms. But that's not what, I mean, this is where we are in Matthew. Yeah, when, when I think so. We recently dog sat for a friend, Rachel. She inherited a dog, an aunt died, and uh, that dog's name it's a cocker spaniel. It's like two years old, from what I hear. It's enormous, um, it's enormously overweight, and its name was Cuddle. And it likes to cuddle because it couldn't walk very well, and so his name was Cuddle. Uh, Cuddles, and uh, she changed her name to Tater Tot because it looks like a tater tot. 
And so we got like Cuddle Truth, uh, that was his name, Tater Tot. Like that's hard truth. Like we got to work on this. Um, uh, I, I don't have any misleadings that when we talk about divorce, um, it's a hurtful and difficult topic. And I don't have any misleadings that I feel some people with nervousness or reminds them of pain or guilt and regret. And I, I'm nervous too. And I'm not nervous because I'm embarrassed uh, of the truth when, when the truth of what marriage is supposed to be and what divorce does is laid out. It is robust and full. But I'm not naive that there's a broken world and things are complicated and I'm not... I'm not fooled. Like, like within the room, I, I totally realize that there's probably very few people who haven't been touched or someone they love dearly touched by the pain of marriage's ending. And so there's two things I don't want to mess up. First, I, I don't want to fail to explain what the Bible and Jesus says about divorce. God hates divorce. He sees the destructive power and he hates it. I, I also don't want to fail to explain the gospel and the heart of God in the context of divorce. Like why God hates divorce, what he doesn't hate is he doesn't hate the divorced. And so throughout the scriptures, like we see in Luke 7, Jesus is eating dinner at a Pharisee's house named Simon. And while they're eating, a woman slips in and she comes to him and she starts to wash and oil his feet. And through the process of it, she starts to weep. And she takes her hair and she dries his feet. And everyone knew who she was. She was a prostitute. And they start to grumble and say, oh man, if he was really a prophet, he would know who this woman was and what she was like. And he knows what they're saying. Maybe he didn't have to use his like Jesus, you know, dar thing. Maybe he could just see it on their face. And he says, let me talk to you about forgiveness. Let me talk to you about the brokenness of sin. Let me talk to you about what forgiveness of sin does when you know you've sinned. It causes deep love. And then he, he turns to the woman and he forgives her sin. He receives her. He loves her. He wants to be with her. But he hated prostitution. But he loved her. Or, or, or John 8, a, a woman caught in adultery is thrown at Jesus' feet and they ask him, the law of Moses says she should be put to death. What do you say, Jesus? And he sits there and he draws in the dirt and I always like, what'd he draw, you know? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a curious question to me, you know? He starts drawing in the dirt and he buys time and then he says, he without sin casts the first stone. He protects her. He's not confused about like mispropriety, but he protects her. And then this moment it says that all the people drop rocks and they left and it paints this picture where he gets down and he says, woman, who here condemns you? And she says, no one, my Lord, you're the only one here. He says, neither do I, go and sin no more. Like he got down. Like, and, and don't hit this, Jesus also hates sex outside of marriage because he sees this destructive power that hollows out the souls of people he loves. It drives a scar right through the middle of us. 
but he doesn't hate her. Or in John 4, Jesus goes out of his way to love a woman at a well. He confronts her, he sees her. He sees that she's trying to find satisfaction in relationships, specifically in men. And he, it led her to go through one marriage after another after another. And he says, you've been divorced five times and the man that you're currently living with isn't your husband at all. And so Jesus saw her broken marriages and the longing inside of her heart that made her vulnerable again and again and again and again, and again, and he loves her. He changes her. And so Jesus is gonna speak to divorce, and he warns us about the depth of sin that hides within our words and hides within our heart, that fosters and grows The lies we tell within our hearts, words, and bodies destroy. And so we have three points, and the first point is the longest, and I want you to remember that we started late, so it's not all my fault, so the first point. (laughs) We're just gonna look at what the Bible says about divorce and what Jesus says, and then the second point, we're gonna jump in front of these verses to what was talked about last week, just very, very briefly, kind of highlight it. And we're gonna ask the question, how do we practice and prepare for divorce? And then we're gonna ask the question, how do we stop it? And we're gonna jump to the back of this. And so let's get started. It says, what the Bible says about divorce. And ultimately, if you're looking for uh, just a statement Divorce is permitted in issues of adultery and abandonment, but God hates divorce and he hates its destructive power. And so look at verse 31. We see this familiar phrase. It says, it was also said. And so this has been said a couple different times, a couple different ways, but you have heard it said. And so he's always pointing back to the Old Testament and he's pointing to the law. This time he's not pointing back to the 10 commandments, but he's coming off of like what happens when we hide and foster lust in our hearts. It comes out in adultery, which is a 10 commandment. Seven, seven, 11, seven plus 11 equals 18. 18 year adult, thou shalt not commit adultery. Write that one down. And so He gets it right there and he says commandment seven, but then he jumps to another place of Moses' teaching of the law of God to Deuteronomy 24 where it talks about a certificate of divorce. And he's tying it all together. Like he's being very very careful, like, hey, listen, I don't want you to think of sin as isolated things that just happen outside of you as something that you just wake up one morning like, man, I just wanna be really sinful today. He wants you to think of something that we hold inside of our heart deeper down than sometimes our thoughts or our consciousness, like deeper down in us that has a power to shape us, has the very power to separate us from God. And he says, you have heard that it was said. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries that divorced woman commits adultery. And so this is also unpacked in Matthew 19 a little bit more fully. And so if you have your Bibles, turn over a couple pages to the right, um, and we look at Matthew 19, and we're just gonna kind of walk through this because it's unpacked just a little bit more fuller and we'll make some connections along the way. But in Matthew 19, verse three, the Pharisees who had heard him teach several times, 
Like the Sermon on the Mount, once again, it was probably a collection of sermons that Jesus taught often as he traveled as an itinerant preacher where he said often, listen, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I'm what the prophets talked about. I am the object of the law to satisfy the law. I am the Messiah. God made man to save you from your sins. But he also taught through the law to say, listen, you know what the law says. And it puts us in a place where we can't do it. And so they questioned him. In verse three of Matthew 19, it says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And so the Pharisees had heard Jesus talk about this a lot. So now they're coming to say, hey, we wanna know exactly where you stand. Are you with us or are you against us? And so they wanna know like, hey, you be clear on your views of marriage and divorce. They were asking Jesus, take sides in a religious debate over, over divorce. And so they were asking ultimately, Jesus, are you conservative when it comes to marriage and divorce? Or are you liberal when it comes to marriage and divorce? And man, we ask those questions all the time. Is Jesus conservative? How would he vote? Or is he liberal? You know what I mean? And, and then we fight about it. And this is what I want to say. Jesus has a different kingdom ethic altogether. And there are sides on both sides of the aisle that want something that Jesus has. But the only way to get the kingdom of God is through the king. No amount of legislation is going to do it. No amount of rubber bands on your wrist that you pop yourself when you mess up is going to do it. You got to deal with the king. And so this question comes from one word in one verse, Deuteronomy 24, verse one. And so just listen, this is what it says. So Moses is writing, he's expanding upon marriage, and he says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, that's the word, because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her, he chooses to write, so he makes a choice, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And so this is saying, like this is saying in a Greek, Roman Greek culture where there were no divorce laws. And so you didn't have to file it with the state. You didn't have to write anything out. You could just be like, I'm done, see ya. And so it's speaking to a Jewish community that has a much higher view of marriage originally because of the Old Testament, because of what, Jesus, because of what God says about marriage. And so there was a process that you can't just divorce for anything. It has something to do about this word indecency. And so what happened where there were two camps, there was this conservative camp that under a rabbi Shammai who said indecency meant adultery. And we see this in, in Matthew one where Moses finds out that Mary is with child. It says he chooses to divorce her quietly, even in the betrothal. He didn't wanna hurt her. But in the mind, like it would have been like, man, sexual adultery, it equals broken marriage. And so in the mind, that's what it would have meant. So he said, well, that's what I'm gonna do. But here it says like there's a choosing. So that's a conservative camp, but there was also a liberal camp that was being influenced by society of what it means, of the culture that they were in. And so Rabbi Hillel, he says that indecency could mean anything upsetting, anything. And so Jesus answers that ante and raises it to creation standards. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you conservative, you're right, or oh, you liberals, you guys are right. He says, let's look at the very beginning. And so he goes back to creation, look at verse four. He says, 
He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, one organism, one person. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I mean, Jesus says, conservative view, liberal view, Marriage was never supposed to end. He's saying like, think about Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, naked with a lot of acreage and apparently like a temperate California temperature climate. But he says it was meant to last. And so he says, let's look at the very intention from the very beginning. And he says, marriage is meant to be permanent. But he doesn't stop there. It goes to verse seven. He says, they said to him, well, why then did Moses, look at the word, command. So, so why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her on her way? And so this is coming, like even in that moment, it's kind of like making everyone nervous. So they ante up, it's like, well, he commanded it. But look at verse eight, it says, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so there's two directions. Like Jesus first says, whoa, 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 I'm not gonna point right or I'm not gonna point left. I'm gonna point back. Like let's look at the intention of marriage to becoming one ordained by God as a beautiful union that he is excited about. And then he says, I need to point in. He says, it's because of hardness of heart, because very much like Matthew 5, because sin lurking inside of our heart, becoming the loading docks for our actions and what we desire and what we want, hiding in our heart. So he points back and then he points in and he says, listen, divorce was never commanded, but it's allowed in some circumstances. And so Jesus warns us of a danger working in our heart that will seek to bend scripture to fit what we want. And so I, I, I'm gonna introduce you to two categories where the Bible says divorce is allowed. And there's, there's obviously all kinds of debate around this. Uh, but the first one, the Bible allows for divorce for adultery. In Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, so first said in Deuteronomy 24 and then confirmed by Jesus in Matthew 5 and 19, it's not commanded. Forgiveness and reconciliation is possible even when it comes to adultery. I know, I personally know people who have beautiful marriages after infidelity occurred, but... Their hurt was deep. The price of healing was high. But when they paid it, when both parties paid it, their reward was immense. And so Jesus, knowing how the intertwining of souls is supposed to happen, the closeness of marriage, knowing what sex was originally supposed to intend and what's supposed to say knows that that is a deep hurt and it takes two people to enter in to forgive, but it is possible. Like it's possible. I would arrange a phone call and say, man, just get to know their story and hear them. Like it is possible. The second category, the Bible allows for divorce in cases of abandonment. First talked about in Exodus 21, uh, then confirmed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Abandonment is a much more difficult 
um, situation to define or determine. It, it, it's, it's obvious in extreme circumstances, but it's muddied in the in-between by disappointment and hurts. Like, I just want to say this, like, if you're in, in a marriage and you're like, man, I feel abandoned in every way, or a spouse is leaving and it feels like, man, I feel abandoned, or abuse can be a part of abandonment. Like, I'm not, I'm not choosing to protect and to hold, I'm choosing to dominate and hurt. Like, all of these things are cases that start to put us in the direction of abandonment, but like, you need community around you to think about it rightly. I mean, What suffering does, what hurt and disappointment, what those things do is they start to build blind spots in your life that excuse you for different things. And the problem about blind spots is you just can't see them. They're blind to you. And this this is why like we, we just had a men's event and we put it all on. I just had one message and the one message was, hey, I turned 40 and it's like the new TikTok trend. Like my marriage is just blowing up all around me and I am seeing this destructive power and I'm scared to death. And this, what this is saying is it doesn't just happen. It grows in our heart and things aren't dealt with and it grows up. And I was like looking at like 30 or 40 guys who were there and I just said, I want you to be in accountability. I want you to be across the table from other men who are gonna ask you really hard questions. Like, are you being a jerk? It sounds like you're being a jerk. I saw you be a jerk. Stop being a jerk. Or, or, or hard questions about, give me your phone. I wanna look at your phone. Or, or hard questions about, that relationship makes me uncomfortable. That is not honoring. It is dangerous. Like, I want you to have men around you who will fight you that you might fight you and agree with God. Because it doesn't just happen, it grows. And so in this, you need people around you. Sometimes you need people around you to say, hey, what you're wanting is crazy. Like what you want, I'm not saying it's not good. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm saying it's unreasonable or it's unreasonable for that to happen just tomorrow. Like you need accountability because things sound true when you don't say them. Have you ever said something inside your heart out loud? You're like, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. That sounds dumb. And so you need to be in community. Christian community helps you. People who love you enough to tell you that you are wrong because when you are hurt and disappointed, There is a justifying, looping narrative running in your head that can eventually explain away and justify anything. So Jesus points back, and then he points in, and he says marriage was never supposed to end. It's allowed in certain places but it's meant to mingle two souls together to a point to a greater union that we have with God through Christ. And so the Bible allows divorce and adultery and the Bible allows divorce and abandonment and you need God's people and you need the scriptures over your life and you need people praying for you to work through those things. But the Bible also says God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16, it is translated differently in literally every every translation out there. It is crazy. But the NIV translates it this way. It says, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, he does violent to the one whom he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. 
And, and so translating that way, he says, listen, you were supposed to protect, cherish, and love until death do we part. And when you divorce, you are doing something very, very violent and hateful. Or it could be translated this way. I hate divorce, says the Lord. It depends on where we're putting hate. And so it's a little confusing. So it could say, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, because the man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. And so that's just, just attacks those two things, wherever they attach. Like we have God saying there is something hateful here and we have something, there is something very dangerous and hurtful here. And so when God looks at what divorce does and the ramifications of it and how it scars what he built to be beautiful and how it's so deep inside our souls, he says, it is violent and I hate it. And so what this means is when I married Kinsey, God entrusted to me his precious daughter whom he laid his life down And he wants me to take that seriously. He wants me to be faithful. He wants me to be protective in every way around, to be gentle. In 1 Peter, it describes women as as the weaker vessel, which, you know, I mean, it's like, it's not talking about like, well, I mean, you know, they don't have enough testosterone, their upper body strength. It's not talking about that. It's talking about like fine china, something special, It's not Tupperware, something special that should be cherished and loved. And he's like, I expect you to act that way because I have entrusted to you the daughter whom I laid my life down for. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants me to lay my life down in every way as Jesus did for the church. This kind of teaching, keep going in Matthew 19, it's why the disciples right after we read, like, man, maybe nobody should get married. And he's like, well, you got an idea there, you know? And so it's high. So he's pointing back and it's saying, listen, this is what's happening. And we are told, I am told through the scriptures, I will give an answer to Jesus himself for what I do. God is a loving father and he has entrusted his beloved daughter to me. And I'm a flawed man. I get selfish, I can get chippy and bitter. I mean, I can cut people with my tongue. I'm a flawed man, I get impatient. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, I have the Holy Spirit of God working inside of my heart, changing me through repentance of saying what is true to God and to other people. And that is the process that changes my heart. But like even that, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dad, I have three daughters. Like, this makes sense to me. Like, I have three daughters, and you want to know what I feel at the thought of someone hurting, mistreating, using, or abandoning my daughters. Well, I mean, it's not good. And so, you know, when Jesus is saying this in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, divorce was rampant in the first century. The Greek culture didn't have any kind of formal divorce laws whatsoever. So, I mean, you could be divorced one day and back together the next day, and And then as the debate that we just hear over this word indecency shows, it was a growing problem in the Jewish culture culture as they were changing to the culture around them. And divorce is rampant in our culture. Like our culture makes divorce an easy option, but it can't undo its destructive power no matter what we say. 
God hates divorce because of what it does. I'm not, I'm not a big statistic guy because usually I'm like, hey, you know, I just want to appeal to your heart. I'm like, hey, you felt this, you know this. But listen, I just want to say three things about this. Divorce devastates economically. Uh, one of the studies that I read, it says that a family that goes through divorce, they are 73% poorer reduction in monetary assets than a family that doesn't go through divorce. It exposes women, children, men to, to the, the, the dangers of poverty because all of a sudden you have to have two households and you have legal bills. And if you can't get together, especially with kids, like you have lots of legal bills because you can't work it out. And so it de- devastates economically. It puts people at risk. Divorce devastates emotionally. You know, and I mean, this is, this is so obvious. It's like, why, why are we even talking about it? Obviously, it devastates emotionally. People are hurt. Like, we say things to ourselves. Like, we say things, oh, man, it'll be, the kids will love it. They'll get two Christmases. They don't love it. Man, it, this study, it happened earlier this year, and so I just read it. It was saying you would think that those who leave unhappy marriages would be happier in the end. And then it says, and if you think that, you would be wrong. Their study performed earlier this year found that unhappily married adults who divorced were no happier in any of the 12 separate measures of psychological well-being. Divorce does not typically reduce the symptoms of depression, raise self-esteem, or increase a sense of mastery in life. That same study showed it followed couples that were having difficulty, that were contemplating divorce, and that same study showed that two-thirds of them within five years reported happiness. But if it's easy and uncomfortable, man, it's just easier to get out. But it doesn't deliver. See, the, the mingling of the heart, like what Jesus is talking about, like if you remember, he said, hey, listen, murder's bad. Let's agree with that. He says, it doesn't even start there. It starts with hatred in your heart. There's a dark layer inside of your heart and you're fostering hatred. We are thinking, man, I hate that guy. That guy's a jerk. And then you start finding evidence for why he's so evil and so dark and then all this phony evidence for why you're okay and you're justified. And he says, that's where it starts and it grows. And then last week, Ryan did a great job saying, man, if we're talking about adultery, that starts with lust in the heart, with intentionally fostering lustful thoughts. It is the loading dock for your life. And so a lot of the guys, you know, at the thing Friday, they were single. And so I'm like, listen, I'm just telling you, man, you got to fight for your marriage right now. If God lets you be married, I'm just saying it won't go away. You think lust stops when you get married? You are wrong, my son. And so he's constantly pushing back to the heart as the loading dock of our actions. And he does the same thing here. And he says this, divorce also devastates generationally. Children of divorce are more likely to have behavior problems and use illegal drugs the study said they are less likely to complete high school or attend college. The study said they are more likely to engage in dangerous sexual relationships before the age of 17. The study said women whose parents divorce while they are kids are 59% more likely to divorce later in life. The study said and the likelihood of divorce when both spouses come from divorced homes increase 189% that they will also experience a divorce. I don't know how you, 189%, I don't know how you calculate that. 
I'm not like I'm not really a statistic kind of guy. Like, but the numbers show devastation, and the scriptures and life prove. Man, God hates the devastation of it. God's hate what it does. It hurts people so badly. And it's certainly allowed in some cases, but God still hates it. Divorce also mars what God made to be beautiful. If we had time, um, man, I would, I'd walk you through the Bible. And if we, if we had time, I'd walk, walk you through. And if we didn't have our middle schoolers in here, I'd walk you through the Bible of how God looks at marriage and sex inside of marriage and how he gets excited about it. Like I would just walk you through, but we're, we're short on time, but I'm gonna give you a little highlight here. And so in Genesis 2, God presents Eve to Adam in a marriage ceremony and declares him to be one flesh and Adam sings a love song to her. They don't have clothes and Adam is singing a love song to Eve and God's right there like, oh, this is pretty cool, you know? I mean, and so like, that's a good start. You know, Proverbs 5, it says that a husband should be intoxicated by a wife's. And so, I mean, it just says it. Like there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of hermeneutic work to be done there. Like it just says it. Like I, I, I reference that in weddings and I, I, I mean, I only say the word like one out of 10 because I get so embarrassed, you know, because I'm up there like, Hey, yo, you know what I mean? It's just awkward. But Proverbs 5, that's how I talk. Song of Solomon, translators are too prudish to translate it accurately. And I'm telling you, Song of Solomon 4, you need to read. One of the titles is Entering the Love Garden. Like Aerosmith wrote it, you know? <laughs> Entering the Love Garden. Like, I don't, I, I could stay awake just to hear you breathe. I mean, like, and so, like, hey, this is the Bible. We're still working through it. Ephesians 5. It comes along for Paul to say, listen, man, marriage is this intermingling of people where we do, it meshes them together in such a way in friendship and in and, and, and relationship that you shouldn't really know where one starts and the other ends. And it's not, it's not me becoming less me. It's not Kinsey becoming less her. It's supposed to be uh, doing life together with this mysterious thing that God has done in our souls where we can start to finish one another's sentences, not in like that predictive way where you just make people mad because you assume and you know what assuming does. It's, it's in a way that you feel cherished and loved. Like it describes it and then it says this and it says it points to the beauty and fidelity that we have in Christ it is a mirror that reflects a faithfulness, a present forgiveness when confession is made, a oneness, a joy, and an intimacy that should be reflecting back the picture of what we have in God through Christ. Like he geeks out. Like, I mean, he's got his little like pen and he's like writing and he's like running out of parchment. So he has to get to the very, he's like, oh man, I'm out of paper. And he finally just says, hey, listen, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Like he gets down, he's like, man, just do this. And then we get to Revelations 19 and it says, and we see this in bookends in the beginning in Genesis one and two, we have this marriage ceremony with singing and romance. And then we get to the end of the Bible. And so the beginning of creation, we have a marriage ceremony. The beginning of eternity to come, we have another marriage ceremony where Christ comes back for his bride, the church. And it's just like this party. 
It's just like this celebration. And it's meant to say, man, the oneness that romantic love and fidelity and treasuring one another can give, it is only a dim mirror or a foretaste or the appetizer of what is to come when we have Christ and we have him fully. I don't even know what all that means. But that's what the Bible says. Jesus comes back for his bride, the church, and it's the most epic party you can ever imagine. And so what's the point? The point is this, God made marriage to be permanent. God made marriage to be full of joy, intimacy, and pleasure. God made marriage to be so unifying, it's hard to tell where one starts and the other finishes. God made marriage to point to his perfect, never-ending, always satisfying love that we can have through Jesus Christ. But sin has marred that to the heart level. But marriage, by God's grace and his common grace and his specific grace, is still possible to give warmth and protection and love and reconciliation is possible. It still reflects the faithful love of God when we will give ourselves. But... When we give ourselves to sin, first on the heart level, it puts marriage, the mirror to reflect the triune God who makes a covenant with us because he's a promise keeper. It smashes that mirror before a world that desperately needs to see that. So the Westminster Confession, when it's asked, is divorce ever justified or allowed? It says, it says this, that why our fallen nature wants to divorce for any and every reason, Matthew 19, 3, nothing but adultery or such willful disurrection or desertion, 1 Corinthians 7, as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrates is cause sufficient for dissolving the bond of marriage. Traditionally, the church has combined the teaching of Jesus and the instruction of Paul to allow for divorce and adultery and abandonment and abuse. The Bible has a lot to say about marriage and divorce. And this is just my question. Will you trust it? It's hard. But will you trust it? See, if you trust it, one day you'll celebrate it. Not like a, you know, like party hat celebration, like a deep, robust, it's good. Step into the river of God's love and trust him. And so that's the first really, really long point, and we're gonna go really, really fast, I swear. How we practice divorce. We visualize and rehearse it. Two weeks ago, Jesus warned us that murder started in the dark lair of our hearts, fostering hatred. And last week, he told us that adultery comes out of a heart of deliberately fostering lust. Jesus is intent to show us the deep origins of outward and apparent sin. And so first we, we visualize divorce in our heart, sometimes long before we're married, like fostering lust in our heart, actively and willfully engaging in it conditions your will to act. Yet your thoughts are the loading dock for your life. This is why Romans 12.2 says, don't let your thoughts be conformed to the pattern of this sinful world, but let them be transformed. Or this is why 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we must take every thought captive 
talk back to it, examine it, doubt our doubts to make it obedient to Christ. Like we prepare ourselves for divorce by visualizing it long before we're married or long before we're divorced. And it starts with like this, like whatever you're experiencing in marriage, you start to think, man, the grass is way greener over there. Like they're just happy. Like they have champagne all the time. I've seen their Instagram. Like they're never mad. They're always happy and they're so pretty, you know? And we think, man, I just, I should have that. And that's not real. First off, they, they, they might be doing marriage better. Like their grass might be better because you haven't gotten over there and jacked it up yet. Like I, my neighbor, my last neighbor, his grass was so impeccable. I was so glad when he moved and the new guy moved in. I was like, oh, this, this is so much better because I could keep up with him. Like I can't grow grass. I'm, I'm a pastor, you know I mean? And so, I mean, and so like we start to visualize it and it prepares us. We also practice divorce with our bodies. Sex is meant to communicate permanence and fidelity. In the meaning of marriage, Keller writes this, indeed sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything else. You must not use sex to say anything else. It's peculiar to me that lost romance songs say the same thing. Like lost romance songs, like, I mean, they, they, they say, man, I wanna love you. I wanna be here for always. I, you know, I close my eyes. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they say the same thing. Something in our heart wants to say the same thing. And so he says, this is what our bodies, but if we practice with our bodies something different, it hurts us and it hurts others. How many times can you say to someone, I love you and treat them horribly, treat them hatefully until they don't even know what love means? How many times can you say, I forgive you, but not? but hold it against them and bring it up over and over until we're confused about what forgiveness even is. We practice divorce with our bodies. We practice divorce by playing house. The statistics are clear. Living together does not prepare you for a successful marriage. It is quite the opposite. If you're saying or someone is saying to you, we don't need to be married to say we love one another. They are saying or you are saying, I don't love you enough to marry you. I need to keep my options a little bit open. And within the confounds of your house, there are hundreds of non-spoken landmines all around that can get instant dissolvation. That's not a word. Dissolve the relationship. And moving in and not working out and moving out is a pretty powerful role play for divorce. This is why back in Matthew 5, verse 29, we was talking about lust. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one member of that than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And it says, listen, if you are visualizing, cut it out of your life, get accountability. If you are rehearsing with words or body or thoughts in your mind, it's saying act drastically, act soon, get accountability. We 
practice. How we stop divorce is we start practicing and rehearsing promise keeping. Every day, practice and rehearse truthfulness in words and thoughts and in body. Jesus says, practice the truth in every yes and every no. Back in Matthew 5, verse 33, he says this, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so th- this is not a direct quote. This is like a ratcheted together from the Old Testament, Exodus 27, Leviticus 19:12, Numbers 32, Deuteronomy 23. Like it's kind of ratcheted together that says, hey, all these oaths, like they're actually commanded, like they're supposed, like a lot of people in the Bible actually take oaths. Like a lot of people. Paul swears oaths in, in Romans 1, 2 Corinthians 1, and 1 Thessalonians 2, Philippians 1, 8. Paul swears oaths. So it's not saying don't ever swear an oath. It, 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 you know, multiple people in the Old Testament swear oaths. It's very, very common. God himself swears oaths. He's, oh, mm, mm, oaths. You know, he promises to never flood the world again in Genesis 9. He swears to send a redeemer, and we see that in Luke 1. He swears to raise Jesus from the dead in Psalm 16 and in Acts 2. Like, this is not about never taking oaths. This is about living in some sort of technicality that you can find loopholes to lie. People were saying, oh yeah, I swear by Jerusalem. Ha, that didn't even count. Who even cares? I didn't swear God. This, is, this, is, this actually is happening in my house right now. Like the uh, crossed fingers thing. This is actually a very technical legal device about truthfulness. And so the way it works is if I say something to you, but my finger is crossed, I don't actually have to do it, but it's complicated because the person receiving the promise, if they match your finger crossed, it is now void and you have to be honest, but you can cross multiple fingers, toes, eyes apparently, even your tongue. And so it's like this jacanic idea that I don't have to be truthful if the parameters aren't just right. Certain parameters, excuse me, to avoid my promise. So I say things like, man, I was just really young when I got married. I didn't know who I was. Or I say things like, man, we've just changed. You're not the same anymore. Or we say, you know what, I mean, this isn't really the life you promised me. Like, you, you said it, it would be different, or, or I expected it to look like this. The circumstances have changed. And Jesus says, your yes needs to be yes, and your no's need to be no. When you tell a lie, even just a little lie, you're actually exercising the lying muscle, and it makes easier for you to lie when you really need the truth. Little lies lead to big lies. When you tell the truth, 
Even just little truths or hard truths, like you're actually exercising the truth muscle. And so little truth telling makes it easy to do big truth telling, which makes it easy to hold big promises when you do little promises. Like it grows and it grows by the power of God in your life. There's a sanctifying process that we can join with God. And that moment you're like, man, I don't wanna tell the truth. I really would just rather tell a lie. It's just a little lie. If you say, okay, I'm gonna tell the truth right now, it grows something in you. But the opposite is true. You see, Galatians 6, 7 talks about reaping and sowing is always working. And so whatever you sow today determines what you will have tomorrow. And so this is true in character. This is also true in marriage. Good marriages are made in a million small decisions every single day. What do you think a million eye rolls do? What, 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 what do you think, like, consistent, aggressive argument and name calling? It's growing something. What do you think telling yourself over and over, I mean, man, he's always like that. That's, what she, that's who she is. It's growing something, whether it's spoken or it's inside of your heart. Like the small daily seeds sowed by our words, thoughts, and actions don't show up that much from day to day, but they build up and they grow up over time. And sometimes you look over the field of your life and you see crop failure but it works the other way. Small truth telling leads to big truth telling. What do you think small disciplines of graciousness do in a marriage over time? What do you think forgiveness daily does or kind words or courageous and gentle confrontation? Daily planting those things grow something over time. What about hugs? What about like saying I love you and I need you and I'm happy you're with me. Thank you Forgive me. It grows something beautiful over time. What would daily rehearsing these words, thoughts, and actions do in your marriage? I promise to be your husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do we part. Guarding that eye roll is, I promise to love and to cherish. I promise to protect. I'm not gonna do that now. So you have hard truths and you have cuddle truths and a little dog called Tater Tot. John 1.14, talking about Jesus coming, it said, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The gospel is about truth. Your sin is so bad and so deep that only, the only thing that can fix you is the atoning death of God. But the gospel is about grace. You are so loved by God that Jesus was glad to do it. But the only way to get the grace of God is to embrace the truth of God. Embracing Jesus and what he said to be true, you will find God. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, Lord, as we, um, man, it's no wonder. Matthew 19, right after the Pharisees try to trick Jesus, 
Right after that, the disciples, hey, you unpack marriage. They say, man, maybe we, none of us should get married. And you're like, ah, it might, be, might not be a bad idea. But Lord, I just wanna say what you created and what you say is beautiful and it's good. It doesn't mean it's easy and it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. And so Lord, like across the room, coming to communion, coming to a table is a reminder that this is only possible. The truth of God living out in my life and in my actions, a way has been made through the broken body of Jesus and the spilt blood of Jesus. And so Lord, it is a regular weekly reminder that I bring nothing but me to the table, but I actually have to bring me for it to get in me. And so in, in relationships, I actually have to bring me. I don't bring a fake me, I bring the real me. It walks down the aisle, it accepts that I need the body of Jesus broken for me because of the brokenness of sin, and I need the blood of Jesus spilt for me because my sin goes DNA deep. So it's a reminder. And so if, if you're with us for the first time, the way we take communion is we start on the bread side, a piece is broken for you and it's declared that Jesus' body was broken for you. Then you take it and you dip it either into the wine, which is in the stoneware, or the glass, which, or the grape juice, which is the glass. We have a gluten-free option on the table if you need that. But we do it to remember what Jesus has done. It would also be appropriate if you're just like, I need prayer. I need prayer. Uh, I mean, we have people behind the black curtains. They're there to pray for you. Um, you can tell them as much or as little. Or if you and your spouse just need to sit there or you and an accountability partner be like, man, I've been lying to you. Um, they're probably not gonna be surprised. But to embrace the grace of God, we have to embrace the truth of God. The truth of God is found in the word of God. The word of God is Jesus Christ who came and lived and died and rose again. Lord, we need you in Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.